Hello, I'm Laura Furiosi, divorce mother of three, and I'm here with my mother, Lynette Galvin, with 35 years' experience in family law. You're listening to the Divorce Course Podcast. Through our candid discussions, we hope to help you through your divorce or de facto separation. We will be answering the most commonly asked questions and covering the stages and steps that you will face on your way to freedom. Did you get a lump sum of money during your marriage or after separation? Did you get an inheritance? Or have you been saving your money after separation and now facing property settlement? If you are a little bit worried about what to do with your money and how it's going to be split, this is part two of sorting your property settlement in divorce, financial contributions and non-financial contributions during and after separation. Even if you've got a lawyer, this is a great episode that you should listen to so you understand what you should be entitled to and what happens to your money. Hello, Mum. Welcome. (laughs) Hello, Laura. How are you? (laughs) I'm good, thank you. Hello, everyone. We're a bit soggy. Yes. We're a bit soggy up here in in, um, Bris Vegas with the the floods, but Mm. we were very lucky to not be too badly damaged Mm. by it. And and you got stuck out in the middle of goodness knows where for a bit, didn't you, Mum? Oh, yes. (laughs) But it's lovely out in central uh, Queensland, but we're home safely now. Great. Well, I'm glad and I hope if anyone's listening, my heart goes out to if you have been affected by the floods. And if the and if your divorce or your custody or if there's anything going on, uh, you can always send us a message and we can see if we can somehow help you in that space. But let's get yes. into it, Mum. We're yep. going to be talking about during and after. During and after cohabitation and after you separate. Why don't we just hit the nail on the head? Because we've already talked about, you know, your financial contributions before cohabitation, which, you know, is is not necessarily marriage. It might just be when you've moved in. So yep. we've talked about how all that money is looked at in your property settlement. If you haven't listened to it, that's episode 44. Mm-hmm. I'll put the link in the show notes. This is the next part. So let's first talk about money that you acquire or you get during uh, during your marriage or during your cohabitation. Hmm. So, Mum, you said to me generally it's 50-50 with the money during- in there. So can you talk to me a little bit about why? Yeah. So so uh, the court's very interested, of course, of what people had at the beginning of the relationship. But if the court were to try and unravel even a seven-year relationship or a 10-year relationship financially, uh, it's just too tricky. And so the court tends to think, look, you know, it's generally a 50-50 contribution of property settled into the property. Uh, They don't take notice of one person earning an enormous salary and one person earning a more modest salary as long as everything that you earn goes into the marriage. But every now and then, or or relationship, I guess, but every now and then people get these lump sums. So it might be like a personal injuries claim. Uh, It might be long service leave that you don't spend. Uh, It could be an inheritance um, or just someone's given you a lump of money or you might win win something. I don't know. But those things Mm. can... can crop up and they will make it a little bit different to 50-50. It's tricky to say exactly what difference it makes, but suffice to say is that every single bit of money that you've brought into the relationship is what they call matrimonial property. There's nothing left out. So even if your ex didn't make any any contribution at all to it um, during the relationship, if that's when you got it, mm. it still gets taken into account, but it's taken into account as a contribution on your behalf. 
So hmm. on TikTok, <laughs> um, where people definitely should not get their legal advice, yeah. uh, a lot of people uh, have had big goes at us about talking about <laughs> sharing the matrimonial property and saying she didn't work, it's not her money, or you know this kind of um, this attitude. Oh, I see. It, it, I, I think, see. You know that, but that's not. It's not true, though, is it? If if, no. if it's if you've been married and you've been together or you've cohabitated. Yeah. What do you say to those people, Mum? I say to those people who will be men, (laughs) and I say to those men, um, look, gone are the days when you assumed you owned all the property and the women assumed they owned the kids. Uh, That's not the case. And every time a pay packet or, or a lump of money goes into the bank account and it's missing a bit because that's been put into super, that's something that could otherwise have been spent on assets in the marriage. Uh, like you, if you'd saved it all up, you might have bought a boat or you might have bought a block of land or something. So, And everyone would understand a block of land at the end of the marriage should be divided between people, right? So the supers should be hmm. taken into account and divided between people. It's very hard sometimes with hmm. clients who think, that the superannuation is all theirs. The uh, she's not getting any of my super um, is hard. It's very hard to get through to people that that's not how the court looks at it. Luckily, these days women have got super as well, um, and you know that's so. Those mm. days are gone, and I say to those people, "You're wrong." Just to correct you, though, Mum, there some were women just quietly that were saying that uh, go get a job. But some of our listeners are in America, Laura, and I have to say this applies in yeah. Australia, not yes. in America. Well, yeah. the other thing I wanted to raise with you, Mum, was like it is very complicated because we're talking about during the marriage where <laughs> you've said generally it's usually 50-50, but of mm. course we've got to you've got to decide on what the percentages are during the marriage, after and before, and then you get the the combined percentage to make up what who should get what at the end so just so everyone knows when mum's saying it's generally 50 50 we're talking about the contributions during the marriage not talking about after and before because that all will get put together in our course we talk you through how to do that with worksheets and lots of lessons and we really (laughs) get into the nitty-gritty of it but of course it's really hard to do that in a podcast um, especially with our internet connection being so dodgy at the moment because of the floods but Mm. just so you understand that it's it's the percentages from before during and after that are combined Mm. to be considered as what you roughly you should be getting and, and as Mama said before, it's it's yeah it's a it's a general percentage, and then it comes down to getting an agreement. Yeah, so it's tricky. So so say you had, you know, a house all paid off when you got together, um, and people might and and that all you've got at the end is that same house you know, with some growth in super, mm. the court may say when you're, th- when the court's thinking about property settlement, they might say, look, you know, you had 90% of the assets to start with. So that's 90, 10. And they consider that then they, then they adjust that 90 and 10, depending on what contributions were made during the marriage. Um, and it is the case mm-hmm. that sometimes just because the marriage was reasonably long, that that 90, 10 might come down to 70, 30 or 80, 20. Mm. It's all sort of subjective, Mm. really. Uh, But we do have got a grid, haven't we, Laura, to help people work out that because it's quite 
subjective. Yeah, we've got yeah. worksheets to help. You said the exceptions for during, and during's pretty basic. We're going to move on to after in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But the yep. exceptions for during, you've mentioned inheritance, inheritances and windfalls yep. and lump sum. So give me an yes. example of what what's considered in that. Um, a personal, in, personal injuries claim. You might hurt your toe and get a, a $40,000 payout. Comp- uh, compensation and you might use that uh, you might put it in a bank account and just have it there it's in your name for the rest of the relationship well that's counted as marriage property but it is something that was a contribution by you um, but then if your husband or wife nursed you while you were having conversations and they drove you to the doctors and everything there might be an element of contribution by them to that so like I said it's, it's hairy another um, item mm. of it could be long service leave if you could take your holidays in long lump sum long service leave you might use that and put maybe uh, I don't know a deck or a pool a lot of people do that um, and that gets taken into account and obviously an inheritance or, or a lump sum from a family member uh, gets taken into account and boosts your contribution during the marriage. So when they look so at how it, much mm. how much does it boost when they look at an inheritance? Do so they go, oh, well, that was from ah. her great auntie Joy? What's usually a split for an inheritance? I can't even tell you. I can say this: that the case okay. law, and we go into that in the course. The case law says that the closer to separation you received it if you receive it late in Mm -hmm. cohabitation or during the marriage, then you get a greater boost to your percentage because of it. Um, If you received it, if you've been married for 20 years, you got it in the first two years and it's been used up on holidays and put in, you know, put in that pool and all of that, then you're, you may only get a 5% overall extra, um, sort of contribution element for that, that the court would look at. So it's never, so if you got, $20,000, $20,000, you're not going to get $20,000 mm. back. You'll get, it'll be a percentage. If that 20000 was invested in a house and now it's worth $800,000, um, you don't get the remaining 780000 It's a percentage. So, you know, it depends okay. how much it is. If it was, for instance, if it was 300000 and the, the pool, the total property pool was, say, 600000 and you got 300000 of that about, you know, two years before you separated, then obviously your contribution during the relationship was was probably 63 70% or more, you know. Mm. It's mm. hard. And it's that hard. leads me into the after. Yeah. Knowing what you said that, you know, that, that it's it's really hard to understand the percentages in a, in a brief mm-hmm. podcast episode, but we, you know, we do go into it in the course. But let's talk about after because I think that's something that people don't know and I think if you are listening and you're just in the divorce mm. process or you're thinking about getting divorced or you're halfway through it, I didn't know about this and I, I think a lot of people don't yeah. know about the fact that after you separate, after you leave, after you say bye, it still matters and it's still somehow taken into account the money that you accumulating or that you get in after you break up, which which you know doesn't yes. make sense to some people. And we've had a we've had a listener who's written in, you know, and said, I've saved up all this money. Um, does it get included in the property pool and so answer answer that mum what's the deal with after 
It does. So a lot of people take a while to get to court after they separate, right? And so the court, uh, the, mm. the Family Law Act says that you've got to look at contributions, financial and non-financial, before, during and after. So the court is going to look, after you say bye, as you say, um, to see what contribution has been made to the to the family. If you've saved up $80,000 since separation, that $80,000 gets taken into account in the pool. You might argue that it's a separate pool because it was entirely separate, mm-hmm. entirely earned post-separation. And the court may say you could keep that eighty, but then they'll say because you've got that 80000 you get less of the $600,000 that is was during the relationship because you've got a financial resource. So it's all in. Um, but also by the same token, mm. if you are someone who's got the main care of the children post-separation, then if you're caring for the kids mostly, that's a contribution on your behalf, a non-financial contribution. Or if someone is um, living in the house rent-free, then that's kind of a negative Mm. contribution. You've also mentioned, uh, so the non-financial contributions that can be made after separation that can be included in Mm. the property, looking after Mm. the kids... Yep. What, running the business, What doing doing renos on the house yep. that you're going to sell? Getting it ready to sell, staging it, all of that, those are contributions, um, even if it's not your, even if you're not the only person paying the mortgage. So the things that you do that mm. build up or add to the property pool or the things that you do that waste the property pool, they get taken kind of as a negative contribution to some extent, very hard to so, prove. Uh, how do you... How do you agree and how do you prove non-financial contributions when you're trying to negotiate a property settlement? How do you say to the other side, but I was looking after the kids the whole time or I was doing all the renos and getting the house ready for sale? So how how do you prove it? How do people prove that stuff? Well, post-separation, your ex-partner knows you had Mm. the kids because if he didn't or she didn't, then you must have. Right. Mm. As for the getting mm. it ready for sale, it probably goes without saying. Um, if you had to prove it in the negotiation, if the other person was not, I, I think sometimes they minimise the non-financial work that you do. Kids are okay. Um, that's mm. they will be told by any lawyer that if you've been, you've had the majority care of the kids, the other party has. Then then there's going to be a, a weight weighting of percentages in their favour. But with the staging and, and getting a house ready to sell, it mightn't be a bad idea to document it, you know, list how many hours you spend mm. with how many real estate agents, how many viewings, how many, you know, and a lot of that's um, visible on the website if there's been a lot of marketing going mm. on. Um, but, yeah, so these idea. things are often fought out to the nth degree if you go to trial and and you really need to get as much money as you can out of this because um, you've had to pay all the way up to a trial but you know if it's something that's a deal breaker a non-financial post-separation contribution might be one of the things that you can let slide if it means that you can set. Mm. Okay. Mm. All right. So they're the kind of things you want to start maybe jotting down. What am I contributing to the property pool since separation? What am I doing? Am I, you know, am I the one who's paying the mortgage? Oh, so this is the other bit. So non non-financial are the things that 
don't cost money, but cost you time, time. which technically yeah. costs you money. Yeah. Start writing that down. Then go to, into the financial side of things, mum. So financial contributions after you've left each other, you're not living together anymore, or maybe you are, but they're in a separate space. Mm. What kind of financial contributions can people be making that can be put into the property settlement? A, a common one, a common one is adding more to their super, maybe putting extra contributions, or maybe the superannuation is just growing. Um, so that's a post-separation okay. contribution. So if you split up and your superannuation was seventy thousand, and by the time you get to decide your property settlement, it's up to ninety-five thousand, then that twenty-five thousand mm. dollars is a post-separation growth. Uh, and you should get a bigger recognition, a bigger share of the super for that reason. Uh, similarly, though, mm. uh, there are negative contributions post-separation uh, where people have a credit card and they run it up to the max and you can show with the statements that they've done it since separation. So sometimes that just uh, people say, well, that's your problem, you did that post-sep. Sometimes people pay the credit cards off, the joint credit cards off during separation uh, a post separation, and of course that doesn't. That's just a less of a debt, but it doesn't kind of show up as an asset. So you've got to advocate for yourself mm. on that and say, look, when we separated, we had a thirty thousand dollar debt. I've paid it down to fifteen. That's a contribution on my behalf because if I didn't do that, we mm. would have fifteen thousand dollars assets less. It's what tricky. about taking the kids to swimming lessons and, I don't know, going to, um, I don't know, their extracurricular activities and paying for all of that sort of stuff? Um, is that part of the after financial yeah. contributions? Yeah. The co- yes. If, if a person um, doesn't pay proper child support, uh, then the person mm. who's left with those expenses that that becomes uh, something they've paid on their own behalf. But if the the other side is paying child support as assessed, um, that is meant to cover mm-hmm. their share of swimming lessons and so forth. So it'd be unusual for those things to give you any extra credit. Uh, you might find something like where okay. there's a camp, a school camp, and it's significant in costs and the other party won't pay any mm. of it, then maybe... Uh, that could be a little bit of a factor in your favour, but I wouldn't hope for that much. I think that could get lost in the, in the trial. Okay. And what about bills and mortgages and rent? If you're paying the rent or the mortgage or the bills in the house, does that count towards after separation financial contributions? <laughs> Sorry to interrupt this episode, but we have a really important announcement that very well might just help you out. Currently in the family court, do you currently have a family lawyer? Come along to our new free webinar called How to Keep Your Costs Down During Family Court Proceedings. Reserve your seat now by clicking the link in our bios on our social media pages or going into the show notes and clicking on the link. In this webinar, you will learn how to manage your legal costs during your divorce. We walk you through how to actually get your divorce, property and children's settlements sorted without spending thousands of dollars in the court. Mum will also talk you through how to avoid costly pitfalls when hiring lawyers and getting lawyers to do your court documents. If you register for our free webinar to help make your divorce less painful and costly, you'll be able to discover the steps you can take yourself to keep your costs down and not end up with horrible bill shock. Learn from Lynn, a lawyer of 35 years experience. Get some gems of information and set yourself on the right path to your new life. Click on the link 
and reserve your seat today. Now let's get back to the episode. And what about bills and mortgages and rent? If you're paying the rent or the mortgage or the bills in the house, does that count towards after it does financial it does. contributions? And here's where good record keeping okay. comes in. Or thank goodness, our online uh, records we can we can access. So if one of you leaves, mm. and, and let's face it, very few people plan the separation kind of it happens a little bit quick and suddenly oh gosh there's mm. a 300 dollars bill in joint names for for the phone or power or something um that should be mm. shared between you both but if the other person won't pay it um then you may have to pay it and then half of that is a contribution you've made over and above your own half if you know what i mean so you'd get the credit for 150 and i've seen people produce the invoices for things especially if they were in the middle of renos and the bills start coming in and it can be a 20 or 30 thousand dollars to be added back to your share because that was a clear payment you made on behalf of the other person so that's one time where it does actually seem to come back in as a as a clear add back and we're not talking about percentages all right. But if you're living in the house and paying the mortgage mm. um, and the other person has moved out to rent, the court ex- expects that you will pay the mortgage because you are the one living there and you will pay your own utilities. So not the first one, obviously, with joint names, but you should be paying your own phone electricity. And the basis of that is that the other person has had to relocate and they are, they will have rental, bond, and all of their expenses. So that's the that's the way the court looks at it. And I think we've said before, Laura, that, of course, the banks don't think of it that way. The banks go, you know what, mm. you're both on here and it's either you or him and we'll mm. get either of you. Mm. Okay. So, and, <laughs> and you've already mentioned super growth as well. Yes. Um, so that's yeah. something to keep an eye on. And I, and you've said before that right up until you negotiate, 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 if you do end up at trial, the morning of it's a very good idea to have bank records, just super Ooh. balance up to date, any yeah. shares, all of that, so that it is reflective of the time that you're making that decision on who gets what, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So it's easier these days uh, to get an up-to-date bank statement or an up-to-date child support record at that moment Mm. Um, because, you know, in the old days with paper records, people could have pulled all the money out last night and we don't know. Uh, But, yes, because the court Mm. looks at the very split second or the day of the trial that's when it really matters. And mm. then they do this kind of forensic exercise, They're quite thoroughly post-separation, not usually as um, detailed during the marriage. And, of course, they're very thorough at the beginning of the marriage. So in the past you've mentioned that trials can sometimes take a while and that sometimes judgment can take a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. What happens then? Do they... When they, the day they make the judgment, say you have your trial, you've got your up-to-date information mm-hmm. and it's like, I don't know, four months later you get your, your judgment. Does it, does it get tweaked then or no, is it no. the judge is the making, day? The judge is really? making a decision on the basis of the information before him or her on that day. So, mm. um, and, and wow. four months is not always, uh, it, it can be longer than that. 
And you really, I can see in times like now with house prices going nuts Mm. that it could be tricky. So hopefully they're getting their judgments out nice and quickly mm. now. Yes, and that's something to keep in mind as well, that leaving maybe leaving the decision up to the judge where you could potentially be waiting year, mm. like a year or a month or two months and the share price and the house prices could go up, down, all over the place. That's something you've got to be prepared to risk if you're going to wait, I guess. Yeah, consent orders are good in that case because you can decide it. The orders are made then and there. You get your money and you can go and buy another house or buy some shares or whatever. Okay, so what's consent orders? Can you talk us through that a Okay, bit? so um, in our course we talk about when you get to an agreement, you can do an application for consent orders and then you file your orders. And it's mm. like saying to the judge, Your Honour, we want the court to make a decision and here's the decision we want the court to make and those are the orders that you've agreed on. When you go to trial, you apply to the court, you go, I want the court to make a decision and these are the orders I want you to make, and your other party will file their response and say, these are the orders I want you to make. And, of course, the judge has to make a decision between the two. If you've both filed different orders sought and you've got all your way to trial, and on the morning of the trial everyone knows exactly what everything's worth, everyone knows precisely what their case is, it's very common to settle the case on that morning the barristers talk to each other Mm. and they talk to you and they reality check and it's really nerve-wracking to think I'm about to go in there and be in a witness box and it's some person I don't know going to make and there's a very high chance your case will settle in the morning reach agreement someone will write it up you'll sign it your ex signs it you go into the court and the and the barrister or your solicitor or you will say your honor i'm happy to say that we've resolved our matter and here are the orders we want you to make so the difference between Hmm. a consent order with here are the orders we want you to make and the ones that don't happen until the trial are tens and tens of thousands of dollars and probably a year of very intense stress Hmm. Hmm. Mm. And in our in our course, we try and help you negotiate yep. consent orders. Get before you even get to trial, before you even get barristers and all that mm. in, involved. Um, we even have a way, uh, a template that you can use and plug in your own information once you've done mm. all the calculations that we've talked about here. Um, but let's go back for a minute. Mm. Um, you've mentioned one of the most absolute biggest myths that drives you mental that you want everybody <laughs> to know. It's about non-matrimonial property. What is that? Uh, uh, it's nothing. There's no such thing. Okay. <laughs> <In family law. laughs> it's because it's a myth, Laura. It's a myth. <laughs> what do people think it is? And so that people know it's not a thing. I, know. I think it should be framed and hung up in some lawyers' offices because they do forget occasionally. Oh no, that's non-matrimonial property. That was an inheritance they got from their mother. Or this is the um antique piano or Stradivarius they've had since before they were ma- married. It's not matrimonial property. No, it is matrimonial property. Everything is property. Everything's property and then the court just looks at contributions to each of those assets and allocates them accordingly. So that that's the myth. That's the one. So everything's in. Okay. Even if you've got your old E.H. Holden or everything goes in. 
I kind of think of it like um, those old scales uh, that you used to have in your office that I used to play with all the time when I probably, I think I might have broke the them. The justice scales. Yeah. yeah, the justice scales. <laughs> and so every, so you think about before cohabitation, I had a house. So you put that on, on your side and then he had a car and a little one on his side. Yep. His side. And then during, during cohabitation, I had an inheritance windfall and I don't know, he had an insurance payout and you put it on his side. And then afterwards I looked after the kids the whole time. So I put that on my side and the scales balance, balance. And then it gives you a little number at the end that says, ding, 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 you, your percentage is this and his percentage is that. Wouldn't that be great if that existed? Ah, but remember, it's what they do. It's called, they weigh it up. They give things appropriate weight. But remember, what we're talking about here is only the contribution part. And it's not the contributions only that the court looks at. They also then, once they get that little ding, ding, ding number for contributions, then they look into the future and mm. say, okay, if this is what the this is the number, how will they be in 10 years' time? What's their future like? And then that might be the subject of our next podcast. Uh-huh. So that's the next step. Yep. So then they say, it, and it's things like if you've got someone on $300,000 a year and someone on $90,000 a year, uh, then usually there will be an adjustment to that number to take into account future needs. Mm, mm. Um, or if someone's got um, the children full-time or, or something, you know, or someone's not well. And uh, yeah. then that's so a health concern. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they tweak okay. that number. So that's true. The future needs, we will do a whole episode on because I, I know in our course that's another whole lesson and a half by itself. Oh my gosh. Um, so let's just, with regards to the divorce personality types, mum, yeah. with negotiating and getting during and after, manipulative and controlling, what kind of issues can you run into and how can you counteract some of them? Do you. What do you see? They just lie sometimes. So, you know, oh, no, I never did that. She never, I never bought that car or um, mum never gave me that house. And your best uh, defence with those people is get the facts, get the records and prove it. Some things you might not be able to prove, um, but, yes, but we have ways of dealing with those sort of people. We did an episode called Disclosure, Do-It-Yourself yes. Disclosure, um, that you can go and listen to, mm. where mum talks you through how to find out what properties and when things yeah. were bought, et cetera. We've, mum has ways yeah. and we have shared them yes, with you. So, yes, yeah, so that's yep. one thing, mum. Thank I was going to say what Judge Barry said that stuck with me. Um, he's passed now, but he said, remember, you only end up in trial and and possibly even you only end up in court over property if one person is unreasonable and so that's why it's an emphasis mm. on um, the manipulative and controlling type or our high conflict person who just doesn't want to be the one that gives mm. an inch you know they like the idea of a fight mm. those people um mm. of course as we've talked about the conveyor belt you go to mediation yep. before you go to court and in mediation we've done episodes on how to be prepared for mediation but if you have all the information in front of you does mediation work or are you just going to hold your breath and hope it does with with high control uh, manipulative and controlling so mediation works generally 80 to 85 percent of cases and i'm thinking the remaining uh, 15 percent mm. are probably Probably your controlling types or your high conflict, um, but having the mm. facts 
there. So mm. good preparation for mediation means that your the mediator and your other your partner's advisors, if they're there, can challenge him or her and say, "Well, you say this, but look, here's the proof. Here's here's that mm. you know here's mm. the um, bank statement that shows who put what into the house, or here's the house in your name." So things like that. So you, facts are king against people like that because you just can't manipulate the truth once you've got it proven like that. Mm. Mm. What about avoidant for discussing the during and after contributions? How, how do avoidant people, how do you deal with them? That, that's hard, isn't it? That I think putting down your case and, and, again, saying if you wrote to them and we have these letters for them and saying, look, I'm thinking... My understanding mm. of how we were is that um, I gave, I had this much at the beginning, we earned this much together, I've done this since, so I'm thinking it's probably around about, you know, 60, 40 contributions. Uh, what do you think? Mm. So just kind of because usually an avoidant person is imagining it to be far worse for them than it really is going to be. So you might find them, they've talked to people and they're going to be left with nothing. So they yeah. stick their head in the so sand and start they're like, that no, dialogue. I don't want to hear it. I yep. don't want to know. Please yep. don't tell me. <laughs> and we talk about how you do that. Mm. Yeah. And, okay. and, it, and it still leaves it open for them to disagree. But if you've put it down and they don't disagree, then you've got your starting place if you don't hear from him in a while you might write and say for Look, your consent I think, orders yeah that's exactly right <laughs> you consent the consent orders <laughs> you didn't say anything so I think I thought we were probably agreed here it is and would you like to sign it thank you yes and here's the pen go and get some legal <laughs> advice before you sign anything though now the I guess amicable amicable goes without saying but you always mention mum be careful that amicable is actually amicable and it's not a wolf amicable until you <laughs> yeah, don't agree yeah. with them. Yes, that right? that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that uh, people go, oh, he wouldn't do that or she wouldn't do that, and they do. Yeah. So, of course, you've got to go through that. The last episode we did back, yes. uh, a couple of weeks ago to look at before cohabitation, then have a look at your during, then have a look at your after. We'll do another episode mm-hmm. on future. But, of course, as Mum said, there's so, so much yeah. more involved in this uh, it's too hard to do in an episode, but it's a good idea to have a, an understanding because those people that are saving up their money after cohabitation and and not knowing that that money is going to end up being put in the property pool anyway, mm. and there's a lot of nasty tricks that some people do. Well, they do. Mom, what are some of the nasty tricks that you've seen that people should be aware uh, of? Well, I think COVID's put paid to some of them, but the first thing used to be a big, long overseas holiday, using up their long service, mm. which they're entitled to do, of course, putting it in other people's names, mm. uh, turning it into cash and putting it under the bed, selling things for a lot less than they're Mm. really worth to a mate. Or uh, there was a case Mm. with the gravel pit I talked Mm. about where gravel was missing when the the wife sent someone in to value it. There was a lot less gravel than there should have been, a lot less gravel than there were receipts for. And obviously he'd been sort of doing it on the side. So Mm. that's another dirty trick. Sometimes people put a positive balance on their on their credit card so that you know you usually don't ask to see much about credit cards because debts are debts but if you have a look sometimes they've paid this 20 or thirty thousand mm. sitting in a credit card or um lately i've been hearing about it in their online betting accounts mm. because it goes out of your bank account 
and you can't identify it and you can't access it. And cryptocurrency now is tricky as well. You said uh, before we started this, you said property settlement is like going to the dentist. You should just go get it done. And I guess you're right because the longer you leave it, the longer you leave Mm. this after cohabitation, the longer it just gets messier and harder. And and like if you don't go to the dentist, your teeth get worse. You might end up with a root canal instead of just a filling. So if you're sitting on the fence and you're umming and ahhing and you just couldn't be bothered because I know we're going to talk about after, but and we've talked about this before but if you don't get your property settlement sorted Mm. mum what happens can you tell everyone what what happens to people who don't okay so you get so so to a trial I'll start from the trial and go backwards but at a trial instead of discussing what you had at the beginning what went on during the marriage and then what future needs. You've got to discuss what you had at the beginning, what went on during the marriage, and what happened after the the marriage ended. And some people have been six, seven, eight years after the marriage ended. As long as you don't get a divorce, you can go back to court whenever you like. With the de facto in Australia, though, you've got two years from the date of separation and no longer, so you've got to get that done anyway. But, yes, so uh, that's one thing. But if you don't get a divorce, Mm. if you don't get a divorce, how far back can you go? Can someone take you to court? If you're still technically yep. married but you've left each other, how far back can they take you if you don't have a property settlement? There's no limit. There's no limit. So it could be like t- 10 years later you've oh, ten years. set up yeah, a new house, ten, you've got a I've new seen partner. Ten years. You've got a- yep. And, and that's Jeez. where it gets tricky because you've bought a house. And what happens is some people say, we're not going to use lawyers, we're not going to get involved in the court, we'll sell the house, take half each, and we'll leave it at that. And that's all very well. But if you haven't gone and got your orders mm. in the court, by consent even, then property settlement hasn't mm. happened. And they'll just call that a prim- uh, an early distribution of mm. assets or an interim distribution. And the reason for that is... Um, some people used to take advantage, and I'm sure they still do, of the other person's kind spirit or trusting nature. And they go, you know what, let's just divide the house and you go on your way and I'll keep what's mine. And then later on it turns out that that person's got much more super than you thought they had. They might have another house, um, you know, things like that. So uh, the court likes to leave it open until it's been looked over properly yeah. by a court as being fair. So 100%, the the sooner you get it sorted, the better. So, yes, so you're making a big, long trial for yourself. It's costing more money. Mm. Yeah, it just costs much more money. And you can't move on. And you might win win money or you might get an inheritance post-separation and then it's part of the pool, property pool. Mm. Mm. Okay. I was going to say that myth about there's no such thing as non-matrimonial property, um, that's Mm. until you have your property settlement then everything after that Mm. is non-matrimonial property and you can do what you like. All right. Well, thank you, Mum, so much for your time and sharing that information for everybody. I hope that's been helpful for you guys. If you're interested, we're having a webinar coming up. You can uh, register to come along to that. That's going to be fun. And also our course can help you walk through consent orders. So if you are in a space where you're friends with your ex and you just want to split everything up fairly, uh, you can get the course do your consent orders up with the templates that we've got and then you know yeah. that in 10 years they're not going to come back and ask 
ask you uh, for half of whatever it is that you've created since then. So, Mum, I think this has been Mm. really helpful. It is very confusing and I think it's really important that everyone understands that Mm. this is general advice only. Uh, We always recommend you go see Mm -hmm. a lawyer to get some advice about where you stand. Uh, But if you are interested in looking at our course, you can uh, DM us and we can have a chat or you can go to the Divorce Course podcast and have a look at our Instagram, our TikTok or our website and you can um, have a look at the information there. But thank you, Mum, for your time. Uh, Stay tuned, everyone, for part three, future needs, which (laughs) we all need to know about as well. But at least if you're in this separation stage, you've separated, just be aware until your property settlement has finalised, any money that comes in or goes out is Mm. part are considered part of the property. Um, and Perfect. I hope everyone's staying safe. And thank you so much, Mum, for giving us your time. <laughs> That's okay, Laura. I hope you dry out there soon. Yeah. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs> Me too. Keep safe. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. If you found this podcast helpful, we'd love it if you could rate, review and subscribe. By doing so, you are spreading the word to help someone else just like you. Lynn would like to remind you that this podcast is general advice only and you should always get legal advice in relation to your particular situation. And remember that the Australian laws may have changed since recording. 